Tēnā koutou katoa and hello everybody. Welcome to the Lentil Intervention Podcast. My name is Ben Adelberg and I'm coming to you from Tamaki Makaura, Auckland. Tēnā kamihi ke te mana whenua o Aotearoa and we acknowledge the local tribal authorities of New Zealand. And g'day, I'm Emma Strutt and I'm currently coming to you from Durrambul country in Queensland. Before we dive into our conversation today, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. And finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please like, share or comment on our social media and consider buying us a coffee to help support our work. Now, on with the show. So back in season two, we made a fantastic decision to provide our future scientists with a platform to share their research. We started with a series of episodes that invited honours and PhD students from a drift lab in Tasmania and have continued to do so ever since. Harrison featured in episode 43 of season two, along with Lillian Stewart. And in this episode, we now begin our next journey of inviting some of them back to update us on their publications and what they're currently up to. That's right. So Harrison Tellerico has now obviously finished and completed that project and has since jumped the ditch and is working as a field ranger with the Department of Conservation on Rakigura, Stewart Island, where he's monitoring both critically endangered and invasive species. There's also been a few very interesting stop-offs along the way. So there's a fair bit to catch up on today since we last spoke. Harrison, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be back, guys. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome back. We're just talking off offline. You're all rugged up. D- deep south, <laughs> we've just had our first bit of snow in New Zealand. Um, I've just come back from Wellington and it was pretty cold there, but you're feeling the bite there, aren't you? Freezing down here. Yeah, I'll we'll get into it a bit later, but I, I, I've just come from sort of the desert in central Australia, so it's, it's quite the difference um, from the heat there to the cold here, but you know, I'm adjusting slowly. <laughs> Yep, yep. Now, because of course, I, I we follow each other on social media, and it was just a couple of months ago I saw that. Oh, Stuart Island. Okay, you must be on a little uh, a little visit. And then a couple of weeks later, nope, nope. Uh, I think he's there for a while. So uh, you know, we definitely had to bring you back. But let's start off with a quick recap. Back two years ago, season two, you were an honors graduate, and your thesis at the time was, can acoustic indices reliably detect the migratory arrival of short-tailed shearwaters? Bit of a mouthful for me. Update <laughs> us. How did that yeah. go? And what's happened since? I'm getting, I'm getting like uh, flashbacks for you saying that. Uh, no, it was, it was a great year. Obviously, honors, you speak to anyone doing their honors, it's quite a stressful and intensive year. Um, the thing with the project was it was really good and it yielded some good results but the indices themselves proved to be a little bit difficult in being able to determine the arrival of short-tailed shearwaters in some instances they could but it was you know if it was it was only if those short-tailed shearwater vocalizations were in a vacuum right so things like wind and penguin vocalizations and other environmental variables really um, affect the, uh, the performance of the in- index um, so basically, I think the, probably the best thing to come out of my research was being able to devise a sort of wind filter to filter out these windy recordings, because that was the main environmental factor that, um, that uh, messed with the index values. Um, so I'm still in the process of publishing, but it's been a couple of years. Um, and yeah, my supervisors are certainly uh, a bit on my case about publishing. Hopefully, you know, watch this space. We'll, we'll get something out pretty soon. Um, but it's m- more, m- most likely going to be centered around that, that wind filter. So hopefully sort of future research that, that are using acoustic indices can implement this wind filter and, um, yeah, lead to more sort of reliable results, I think, with, with index values and seabird vocalizations. 
Oh, very cool. And I suppose we should also mm. ask you for an update at the time you were talking about not having a relaxing summer at all, but having a bit of work on a passion project in regards to building a, a like a, a recognizer for individual vocalizations. How did that go? Did that keep you busy? Yeah, that, that summer? Or is that still going? <laughs> no, that's, it doesn't, you know, I've spoken to, a, I didn't really, in the way that I did it, it didn't work it, because it was just too many overlapping vocalizations. But there's a few people that are sort of working on it in the moment, at, at the moment, keeping, there's a PhD student at University of Tasmania that's sort of having a look at to see whether it's feasible as well and, and getting recommendations from people in the acoustic index, yeah, sorry, acoustic um acoustic space, bioacoustic space. And it does seem like it's going to be a really long process. It's going to require like a lot of training data um, to be able to train this recognizer. Um, so it's, yeah, I'm sorry to say it's, it hasn't really progressed much further than, <laughs> than it did a couple well, of years ago. It's pretty but, complex, so fair enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just that, and we talked about it last time, it's just those overlapping vocalizations. So if you're using something like a, uh, I'll use a New Zealand example, um, I don't know, like, <laughs> uh, if you're looking for like a Southern New Zealand daughter, for instance, it's it's easy because they don't, it's easy to build a recognizer because it's just one sort of clear call um, with not re really many other factors around it. So, you know, there might be a bit of wind or whatever, but you still should be able to detect this one clear vocalization. But when it's short-tailed shearwaters, it's like, and seabirds in general, really, it's just like birds calling all over each other and it's really hard to get a perfect sort of signature, acoustic signature of that of that uh, vocalization. So yeah, you can you can get one in isolation and trying to build a recognizer off that. But when you're running through a recording with a whole host of other birds, it's going to be hard to match that one acoustic signature with the colony calling. Um, so that's the challenge. Um, but yeah, okay. acoustic, acoustic rec yeah acoustic recognizers are used sort of pretty widespread in ecology at the moment. Um, but more for wood woodland birds and uh, than than um, than seabirds because of that constraint. Yeah, I mean, if you've got like 18 million of them in Tasmania, it's going to be pretty hard yeah. to tease out just the one call, isn't it? But <laughs> yes, I, yes, I suppose exactly. maybe take us a step back um, just for anyone that hasn't caught that initial episode um, as to why, like what actually spurred the research in the first place in regards to the migratory patterns with the birds? What was changing there? Yeah, so it was, there was a lot of um, concern that short-tailed shearwaters who are is a long distance migratory seabird, um, they travel from the North Pacific Ocean up in the Bering Sea near sort of Alaska and Russia and travel down to their colonies in Tasmania every um, to the onset of the breeding season towards su at the start of summer. Um, but they're really, usually they're really uh, reliable in their arrival date. So they'll arrive in the last week of September sort of every year. But uh, over the last few years um, leading up to my study, they'd been observed arriving a, a bit later, and that was of concern, especially in places like um, Brody Island and Phillip Island. They were, you know, some, in some cases they were up to four weeks late. Um, so sort of, but it's a little bit tricky to be able to, you know, actually quantify that uh, in, a, in a way that's sort of reliable and efficient. You know, you can sort of, I guess, go to the colony and get a lot of people go to the colony every single night and see when these birds are arriving. But yeah, it's not really that efficient in terms of it requires a lot of resources, a lot of manpower to be able to do that. So I guess the idea for my honours would be, is there a way that we can automatically detect these the birds arriving? And we, we decided that, um, yeah, the acoustic indices might uh, be a good tool uh, in, in, in to do that. But yeah, like there was challenges in that, 
the vocalizations uh, were overlapping and it was hard to sort of get a, get a good reliable arrival curve. But what we did found is it, it was actually pretty easy with these vocalizations to be able to say when the birds were there and when, when, when they weren't there. But it was just a matter of being able to fine tune that to say, to link like the arrival of the birds with the curve of the acoustic, uh, like acoustic distribution, if that makes sense. So it was like 100 birds might equal this amount of acoustic distribution in the environment, 600 birds might equal this amount, 2000 birds might equal this amount, et cetera, et cetera. But it wasn't, we weren't able to fine scale that to, you know, that sort of level. Um, but we were able to determine when the birds were there and when they weren't there, which is still a useful tool in itself. Um, so you might be able to get it within a few days when the birds arrive, but yeah, it's, it needs a little bit more work to be able to refine that to the, the very day or the hour that the, the birds arrive because of these environmental factors like wind and penguin vocalizations and other things. I think for non-academics, this gives a real uh, sense of appreciation for what uh, research is all about because it's not something that oh, a couple of nights in the library and I've got some answers or go to the field after a week, you've got some numbers, some stats and, and you know, this is, this, the, there's a lot of variables. There's a lot of factors is, is it takes time. And as you've shown, you know, two years on and, and there's so many challenges and so on, and you've got to kind of re uh, you know, adapt uh, with, with that research. So I think, you know, for a lot of our listeners or, any of our listeners that aren't in, in that aspect or aspiring to, to study and, and undertake further sort of more, you know, lengthy research like uh, thesis and, and, and so on or patience, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's a lot of perseverance that goes with it. I will give advice that um, I, it was a bit of a kerfuffle to start my honours through, you know, no, no fault for from anyone's, but we just had a bit of problems with permitting and, and other things. And this sort of um, uh, project sort of came about you know, when we we're already a couple of months through our honours, we thought, you know, how, how are we going to, um, what, you know, what's the way, how are we going to choose a different path? Because our project was meant to be something else, but we didn't have the permits to do it. So I, I think maybe if I, if I was to give some advice, it would be, yeah, I don't know, pick a project that's for your honours that's not as like huge as the one I, I picked because it was, <laughs> it ended up me, you know, devising this whole new project, getting the permits for these projects, learning a whole new skill in acoustic acoustic monitoring i think yeah if anyone getting in their honors try and jump on a project that's already established is my advice and because you you know you've got access to data the project's already there the permits are there the funding's there uh, and you can just go and hit the ground running um i i learned a lot of skills doing it my way and i i you know i'm really proud with what i mean achieved the team achieved um but yeah it was certainly stressful at times and you know like you said we're still sort of ironing out the kinks of the publication um a couple of years on it's all about the reward <laughs> yeah. well, i mean I, I, acoustic skills acoustic monitoring skills are sort of invaluable in ecology and i'm so glad that i've got those got those um hard skills now and um just being able to oh yeah just my organization skills went crazy through the roof as well and my yeah, coding skills and my people management skills. And yeah, I, I don't know, maybe I'm a, a bit of a masochist or something, but I really loved the stress of honours. And like, I, I loved, yeah, I loved being under the pump. And I sort of, it really spurred me to sort of work really hard and, and produce something that I was quite proud of. So, you know, you know, I haven't, haven't quite published yet, but sort of got first class honours for, for my work. And yeah, got to get it, was able to get a scholarship through my honours as well. So 
yeah, it's just, it teaches you it teaches you how to prioritize and 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 um, organize yourself and and write as well. Like my writing skills would felt pretty substantially over my honors honors, and that was from help from Jen and, and Jen Jen was amazing advice for that as well. It sounds like you definitely had a lot of moving parts there, so you definitely like a challenge, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now, spe- speaking of which, though, you went from the reasonably cold shores of Tasmania basically to the middle of the desert in South Australia for your next little gig. A um, little bit of a change up in scenery there. So t- tell us about your internship and work with the not-for-profit Arid Recovery. Yeah, so I um, sort of towards the end of my honours, Arid Recovery every year, uh, uh, along with other NGOs like um, AWC, they release a round of uh, internships. Um, so you can apply for internships towards the end of the year. I think it's towards the end of September, they open. Um, so I applied for the internship with Arid Recovery and was lucky enough to secure it, um, which was really exciting. Um, so they, you know, they, they get a fair few applications and offer two a year. So, and I, um, so I signed up for the, for the January uh, Feb, Feb start. Um, so, but yeah, within like a couple of weeks of being there, they sort of asked to be the, their intern pulled out for the, the, the second uh, part of the year intern pulled out and they asked if I could stick around. So yeah, got, got hired as, as sort of like a, I, yeah, I suppose kind of like a jack of all trades. I suppose I was a casual, like, you know, helping the ecologist and helping the conservation land manager and uh, also helping in the, for the um, um, visitors, not the visitor center, but um, uh, like the, social side of things, like, like the science communication side of things um, with, with yeah, with the visitor centre team and, yeah, ended up staying from Feb till, when did I leave? Like, yeah, it's November. So <laughs> ended up being the best part of eight, nine months and absolutely loved it. It was totally different work. It was, you know, I kind of miss seabirds, <laughs> for, you know, when I was there. It was all sort of, it was largely mammal focused. So I had experience handling seabirds and had, had experience, you know, with managing SIBO data, but hadn't really dealt with mammals that extensively. Um, so it was really great to be able to hold sort of bilbies and um, betongs and quolls and process them and do some really cool science. Um, I should explain what our recovery is. Our, our recovery is a uh, not-for-profit uh, NGO um, and they're basically, they're, they're a fence reserve. So it's a 123 kilometre fence reserve um, with the aim of keeping feral pests out. So aim of, aim of keeping cats, foxes, um, wild dogs, rabbits out as well. Um, and they, yeah, they basically got like sort of a floppy top design. So just cl- stop these things climbing over and digging under. Um, so the, it was established in 1996. Uh, once they cleared out all the rabbits, the you know, starting off with rabbits first to sort of, they made use of the Khaleesi uh, virus that came through and dropped the, that dropped the density of um, rabbits. So they got rid of the rabbits in an area and eventually expanded over the course of, of decades. And now it's what it is today. So it's an amazing place that, where native threatened mammals can um, can thrive. Um, you know, Australia is shocking for, for mammal ex- extinction and many of the small mammals are under under serious uh, risk of becoming endangered and, and going extinct. So it's a safe haven for, for these uh, small native mammals, um, but also it works as a research facility. Um, so, you know, there's different sort of uh, sections of the reserve that are, um, yes, yeah, sectioned off with different fences. So it gives, which allows for a bit of experimental control and certain amounts of experimental control. So for once, for instance, one section of the reserve uh, might have, um, so bilbies, betongs, bandicoots and quolls. And so the quoll is like a native predator in there. 
And then another section might have all those bilbies, betongs, bandicoots, but no quolls. So that you, in that way, you can test the, the effects of, okay, what will having no cats and no foxes do when there's no native predator present compared to a predator, uh, native predator present? So it's, and it's a bunch of different things like that that really, yeah, um, strengthens the experimental control that the uh, arid recovery can do. And, and they're, um, yeah, they're, they're producing some amazing science. Um, and yeah, they're sort of trailblazers in, in their field. So from, from Ireland to the desert, South, South Australia, and then yeah. I see you uh, sort of making your way over to Rakiura, Stewart Island, which is uh, the southernmost point of, well, technicality there's a couple other little islands but really southernmost point of of new zealand effectively working with uh or for the department of conservation how did that come about why did you come here and to Stewart (laughs) island of all places yeah it's a good question i i guess i'd sort of missed i don't know like the temperate kind of climate of tassie maybe a little bit yeah, it's sort of, it, I mean, it's it's very different to Tassie in terms of the vegetation, although the West is similar to, the West of Tassie is similar to a lot, some of the vegetation here. But it's, I don't know, it sort of like reminded me of it in that it was just off off the mainland of New Zealand. And yeah, it's sort of like, <laughs> in the eye test, it kind of like reminded me of it a little bit looking at a map. Um, and I just, I think to, to be honest, my sort of ultimate goal is to, you know, in, a, in some years time or whatever, in some years' time, is to get down as far south as I kind of go, one can go, and you know, working on the Subantarctics would be is a real dream of mine. Um, and um, so I think so. This is potentially uh, maybe like a good stepping stone to be able to do that, especially working with Doc. It's there's a lot of there's, there seems to be you know in a few years down the track, obviously there seems to be um, some opportunities to be able to do that, and sort of working on an offshore island in you know. 48 degrees latitude is maybe good preparation for that <laughs> if I do get the opportunity a little bit further down the track. But I, I you know, and that was my, I think my line of thinking when I sort of first got the, got the job and applied for the job, I sort of just saw it randomly on the Department of Conservation website. Um, but when I applied for it and interviewed for it, it really sort of, the project really excited me uh, and the ability for me to sort of, I guess, make a difference, you know, really excited me. So the Southern New Zealand Dotterall, it's where I'm working on the Southern New Zealand Dotterall recovery team uh, as, a, as a field ranger. Um, and basically the Southern New Zealand Dotterall is a um, subspecies of the New Zealand Dotterall. So there's two subspecies, the Northern and the Southern. And the Northern are endangered. Um, there's about, about 2,000 of the birds left, um, but, the, but the Southern are, are really critically endangered. So um, with approximately, you know, uh, 120, 130 or so birds left. So yeah, really critical time um, for the, bird and um, really critical time for the recovery project um, and yeah so it's just it's this recovery team the southern New Zealand daughter recovery team have has sort of just been um, formulated um, pre in previous times the the it was just a temporary staff that were working in the summer um, largely just trapping cats feral feral cats which is the number one cause of the southern New Zealand daughter decline uh, but now sort of a permanent team has been implemented. And it's uh, yeah, really exciting in that it can. Um, we've got a lot of opportunity to, to to sort of grow within the team, and a lot of opportunity to, to help rescue this bird from from near extinction. So um, yeah, it's a really exciting place to work, and the the work itself is really rewarding. It's a lot of sort of tramping around and um, uh, heading up to because the southern New Zealand dotterel, um, unlike a lot of other shorebirds, 
Um, they'll spend their breeding season up on the hilltops of Rakiura. So they're a, sort of a sub, they're an alpine bird, essentially. They'll breed up on the alpine tops, which is remarkable, uh, and then spend the wintering period down on the, in the, in the, the sand, the sand flats uh, around Mason Bay on the island and, and in Aurora Bay in Invercargill. Um, so it's when those birds are up nesting up on the tops is when they're vulnerable to feral predation. So what we're sort of doing is um, like managing the, the feral cats that are in the landscape, uh, particularly around the um, southern New Zealand dotterel breeding sites. Um, so we're doing a lot of uh, a fair bit of cat trapping and a lot of monitoring as well on the tops to see you know when the birds are there, how they're breeding, their breeding success. And you know, recently now the birds are off off the uh, the mountaintops and down on the uh, in the flats. And this is when we're doing a lot of bird banding. So all the newly recruited birds, we're um, trapping them and putting bands on them so we can monitor them throughout the years and testing flax survivorship and uh, among other things. So in a couple of weeks we've got the flock counts coming up. So then we'll know exactly how many birds we've lost this year, and we have lost a few birds this year. Um, but yeah, we're ho ho hoping not too many. Um, yeah. Uh, I should have just kicked off with uh, a few quick little uh, facts about uh, Rakiora or Stewart Island, just for, for our listeners that are not familiar with it. It is generally in the top 10 of uh, destinations in New Zealand to visit. It is absolutely oh. stunning. It's 30, approximately 30 kilometers south of, of the South Island. It is a, an island that's just full of secluded bays. Uh, there's a rainforest there as well, lots of stunning walking tracks, but also there's probably the highest density of kiwi birds as well. So there's a oh, highest yes. chance of seeing a kiwi bird is in Stewart Island. So it's definitely a, a visit, um, much recommended to go visit. Now, you started, uh, because what we want, the next question I want to ask is, what is the difference between the northern and southern dotterels? And one of the mm -hmm. things you've already mentioned is, if it is a difference, but I think it is, because I've seen a lot of the northern dotterels here in the North Island. But you mentioned that the southern dotterel, they, they nest up in the cliffs or up, up, up high. Whereas northern dotterel, I, from what I've seen, they nest on the beaches. Correct. which makes them super exposed because they're not even trying to hide anything, which <laughs> makes them even more susceptible to predators and so on. So tell us a little bit about the difference between the two and talk about numbers as well, because when you say the southern dotterel is critical, we need to understand that that number is, is super critical in terms mm -hmm. of how many there are. Yeah, so the southern New Zealand dotterel is bigger, hardier to cope with the colds of Rakuta. <laughs> the, the cold hilltops uh and and yeah so that's sort of the main morphological difference in that they're, they're a, a fair, a, like a fair bit smaller uh there are other sort of things like just like they've got a little they don't have bands but little sort of wings around their the top of their sort of like um ch chest there and in the southerns they're a bit more pronounced than in the northerns uh and yeah like you said and in behavior as well is a big thing so um like you said they'll nest the northerns will nest on the on the beaches and in the dunes whereas the southern on the hilltops i think the reason for the recovery of um the northerns compared to the southerns is access and ability to protect areas a little bit more um yeah easier um because they're not sort of up in really remote areas uh the remote areas of rakuta you can get people out there and you can fence off certain sections where there's um, birds breeding and birds nesting and have a lot of people on it, a lot of citizen science on the, um, on you know, with the cause. Whereas here it's, you know, we often will have to tramp, uh, you know, six to six hours to get up to the to the nesting sites and stay up in a bivy up, up the top of, of the hills to be able to 
sort of trap and, and protect these birds. And I think that's sort of a big constraint on on their on their protection so far. Like yeah, like you were saying, 120, 130. You know, we don't have the exact number of bigger for the, this year, but yeah, 120 to 130 birds is is obviously really really critical. What's bizarre though is that Stewart Island is an isolated island, small human population on that island. You think would be easier to protect and eradicate pests. Uh, I initially actually thought it was a pest-free island, but clearly not. But you know, one would think it's it's a bit easier because the ones I see here in the north in, in the North Island and, and especially around Auckland, even Waiheke Island, and sure if they're nesting, there's community groups, but they're not. They don't fence fence it. It's just it's just a they just mark the area out and say, oh, just walk around here because there's a nest here. But that's mm-hmm. not stopping dogs. Uh, you know that are you know humans are taking their dogs for a walk and dogs accidentally going and cracking an egg or or feral cats possums uh ferrets hedgehogs i was surprised Mm. to learn that hedgehogs are like the key pest on the north island Mm. yeah cute little things (laughs) yeah so it's kind of the opposite because there's more access it's easy more accessible so it's kind of bizarre that it's actually you know there's better numbers and yeah it's an interesting one i think maybe because trapping effort is greater as well it's easier to trap and have more trapping nights, have traps out for longer periods of time and trap more cats, perhaps. And here, I think it's been sort of, the numbers have sort of been dwindling since the, you know, 80s, 80s and 90s. And cats have always been a really big issue on the island. Cats have been on the island for, you know, since the early 1900s. Um, and they're, they're, they're not, they're, they're, we've, got a high, we've got a high density of kiwis, but we also have a, quite a high density of feral cats as well. Um, so it's, and it's, there's really not, as well, particularly in years of like really, we got a lot of rat, rats as well. Um, and in periods of really high rat numbers on the island that supports high densities of feral cats. And then, the, the, you know, the, the, that in turn really affects the doddles. But you're right in that it's, you know, it's funny that, you know, you've got more prey because we don't have hedgehogs. Oh, sorry, we do have some hedgehogs. We don't have stoats or weasels here, which are huge predators for, for um, you know, ground nesting birds. But they are still very, very critically threatened, these, these dotterels. And we're thinking as well that, yeah, cats are, are, are a huge factor and the, num- the number one factor for that are affecting the dotterels. But it could be a host of other things that we're not actually sure about as well. And this is what it, why it's quite exciting that, uh, you know, this, this recovery team has started up because we can tease, we can start teasing apart these factors more and more. So there could be things like, you know, genetic bottleneck because the, the population has crashed. Um, previously, you know, in the 90s, um, it got down to about 30 or 40 birds and then went back up to about 200 and now it's sort of wow. crashed again. So it could be, you know, we, we don't know for sure, but we could, it could be something to do with um, a genetic bottleneck, um, disease, diseases, or a skewed sex ratio is another um, theory where there's a lot of females in the population and, and not enough males. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, yeah, feral cats is, is one factor certainly, but there could be a whole, a whole host of other factors that we're not really we're not really sure of, and that's going to require us to sort of adapt and and yeah, as as we get more and more more new information, adapt and yeah, hopefully hopefully overcome and safeguard these birds into the future. What what are some of the shorter term and then you know longer term goals of the recovery plan? What are you hoping to achieve within you know like the next five years or so? Yeah, so I mean, it's a lot of um, we, we're establishing new trap lines at the moment and um, putting out more traps and just getting more manpower and, and being able to sort of protect the birds during the breeding season is when they're, when they're the most vulnerable. Um, but we're also sort of hoping for a bit of, um, 
yeah, so research into these into these factors that I just mentioned before, so like sex ratio and yeah. uh, genetic diversity and disease screening and, and things like that. Um, but so ultimately, we, honors project. A hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, it would be great if we had <laughs> the funding for that. It's a, it is actually a perfect honors project, really. I mean, that, that's <laughs> I totally agree. Um, <laughs> if anyone out there, no, uh, Otago University. <laughs> <laughs> Um, hey Jen, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess yeah, and and you know Daniel, one of the team members is, uh, and one of the other team members is really big on the advocacy side of thing, and and the ad- advocacy side of the project, and that is hugely important. Just getting people knowing about the bird to know about the bird and and find ways that they can protect it, and um, yeah, just you know, sort of not just accepting the fact that this bird you know might might just go extinct and really fight really fight for it and daniel's really passionate about that and it's great to sort of have him on on the team um really pushing for that um yeah sort of sort of i guess the the goal is you know and then it's increase the trapping success of feral cats around the um southern new zealand dotterel breeding populations is the first um point of call uh and then as the sort of the years progress unpack other the other factors that are affecting the southern new zealand dotterel and put measures in place to um, sort of combat their decline. Um, so yeah, we, you know, it's 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 nothing that we really it's something that we don't really want to do um, in that captive breeding program. But you know, certainly it's something we might have to talk about in the future um, uh, if the bird numbers get too low. And it's just you know a good way to if by if, if you can successfully breed these birds in in captivity, increasing the genetic diversity of the population. So that plan isn't necessarily in place at the moment um but it's certainly something on the back of everyone's mind if 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 it does become dire dire um maybe perhaps we can implement a plan um, for for captive breeding Mm. and considering the island is such a tourist attraction um what do people need to be aware of in regards to human dotterel interactions or is it really just not so much of an issue considering they are so isolated when they are nesting yeah, while it's nesting, it's not too much of an issue. A couple of the breeding sites go within public tracks, but we found the public to be really supportive. Um, and if they're looking for a dotterel, you know, it's it's really thrilling for a few birders to see a southern New Zealand dotterel. And we get a lot of we get a, a bit of citizen science in the summer months, um, you know, reporting back to see the birds that they've seen, how many birds they've seen, if there was any chicks on eggs. Um, we haven't any had, had, had really any issues at all with the public and southern New Zealand dotterel uh, and interacting with southern New Zealand dotterels. Um, there's actually one on the beach uh, at Ringa Ringa. Um, so we just, just Daniel um, put out in Stewart Island News that came out uh, a couple of days ago. So Daniel put out a um, just a little uh, mention in that in there saying you know make sure you're keeping your dogs on leads and um, don't don't sort of disturb the bird too much, but. The public's the public's good good about that, you know. Sense of ownership over the bird and their wildlife, they're usually pretty good. Keep your cats inside. Keep your cats inside. That's a big thing. But yeah, I mean, New Zealand's uh, yeah, the restrictions for cat ownership in New Zealand are quite uh, liberal compared to Australia. Australia's got some pretty good laws in in terms of like local councils on how to keep your, you know when you need to keep your cats inside, and and a lot of councils enforce that. And New Zealand just isn't there yet, um, unfortunately. So, yeah, I mean, thankfully, that's not the town cats really that are affecting the New Zealand dotterel population. Mm. Um, it's the feral cats in the in, way in the bush. So, yeah, but it's still it is still a great mantra. Keep cats inside for sure. 
And if we were to come across a dotterel that is, maybe this is a northern dotterel thing, um, but if we were to come across one that is pretending to be injured, dragging a, its wing, is, is that a thing as well with, with southern dotterel? Yeah. Yeah, it's funky, isn't it? <laughs> you go up to a nest, and that's kind of a, it kind of gives away their nest a little bit for, you know, like us. I, I think it's a good tactic, um, perhaps, for uh, other predators like cats, maybe. Whereas a dotterel will, if you're approaching the nest, they'll try and draw you away from the nest by acting injured. Um, so, like you said, they'll drag their wing and sort of like scurry over away from the nest. Um, yeah, and sort of get you away from their eggs or chick. It's, yeah, a really cool trade, hey? So, I mean, a lot of the, the, the advice you've just given us in terms of dogs on leads, give, give, give the nest space, give the, because we were saying earlier that, you know, they're quite feisty. The, the, well, the northern dotrels are very feisty when, when you're coming near a nest and they're sort of eyeing you out, you know, and they're kind of crab walking sideways, just keeping eye contact on you as, you, as you're walking past the nest. You know, they're very protective. Yeah. But a lot of the advice you're giving is, is, is kind of applicable to a lot of most birds, right? I mean, it's, it's the whole concept of giving space, being respectful and, and keeping your animals all animals in, in a safe safe manner, you know, whether it's away or just don't bring them to, to the outdoors. I mean, it's, it's pretty generic, right? Yeah, certainly. And it's, there's, there's no coincidence that ground nesting birds and uh, the ones that are the great, uh, under threat the most um, because, you know, they're nesting on the ground. They're so vulnerable to predation. Um, so, yeah, that is where that advice comes in. You know, if you're in an area of sensitive bird breeding area, certainly keep your dogs on leads, keep your cats inside, be respectful. Yeah, just, yeah. yeah nailed it. Can we take a step back and just ask the awful question of what happens if we do lose the southern dotrel population? You know, how what impact would that have in the whole ecosystem on Stewart Island? Yeah, it's interesting. It's uh, yeah, it's I guess it's how you where you and how you value species. Um, it would be a tragedy for because it would just be another bird lost um, in New Zealand. You know, and there's just so many birds that have gone extinct. Uh, in New Zealand, um, due to you know uh, the cause of cause of humans and and feral species, um, so it would be a tragedy in in that sense. Um, it would also be uh, really a, a, quite a risk for the northern population as well. Um, so I guess the benefit of the southern population is that it, you could theoretically um, increase the genetic diversity of the northern population and the southern population by sort of interbreeding them. It's something that is a bit contentious, to be honest, because there's many people that consider southern New Zealand dotterels as their own distinct species. And in fact, uh, in the in like sort of, uh, I, oh, I can't remember the body, but uh, a world body considers southern New Zealand dotterels its own species, but New Zealand considers it a, a subspecies. Um, so, yeah, it would just sort of like, I guess it would just be losing just another such a unique and beautiful bird um, in a really unique and beautiful part of part of the world and part of New Zealand. And I think that would be quite a tragedy in terms of how they impact the ecosystem. Yeah, it's it's quite hard to know um, really until sort of maybe the, the, the bird's gone. Um, yeah, there, there might be an argument that they're quite good at like dispersing seeds because they can they'll often eat the berries that are on top of the, the hilltops and um, yeah, and I'm sure they have other ecosystem. Uh, I'm sure they have other ecosystem uh, function as well. But, um, but yeah, it'll be hard to know what exactly what that is until until they're gone. Or oh, yet another honors project. 
Ah, yeah, yes. Okay. <laughs> Bit of PhD project soon, maybe. <laughs> for sure, for sure. So, um, so what, what next? I mean, is there is there um, intention on on uh, crossing this research over to other bird species on on the island? Um, you know, is the southern dotterel the only the only species that's that's a uh, a problem in the sense of you know at risk? Uh, are there other endangered species on on that island that will? potentially also need looking into or is currently being looked into yeah we've got a there's a host of endangered birds on the island i mean it is yeah it's the southern new zealand dotterel is critically endangered but in a lot of ways rakura is a haven for wildlife that has been lost on the mainland so this you know Stewart island robin uh is here um and overall we've got a pest free uh islands um just to the east of the mainland of rakura and there you've got sort of birds that have been lost in a lot of other places so saddlebacks kakariki are here as well as well as in over island in great numbers um so it's just it's the thing with um sort of feral pest management is that it the flow-on effects will be huge for all these other birds and while we've got a lot a much higher density of a lot of these birds here compared to the mainland it's still the numbers are still quite low unfortunately so yeah this so feral pest management will help help these birds improve and their densities increase um and yeah we'll be able to safeguard a lot of these species into the future potentially even there is a um the there is a plan in place for predator free rapura so this gonna it's a huge island really it's 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 really quite a massive island so it's a would be a, quite an enormous undertaking that's going to take upwards of 10 10 years or so um but if if we can manage it if they can manage it it would be an unbelievable achievement, and yeah, it would just you you would see densities of these threatened bird species increase exponentially um, with no rats and no possums and no cats on the island. Yeah, it would be absolutely amazing for for all the birds involved. That's brilliant. It's a really exciting time to be involved in this project, and hopefully, hopefully, those goals are achieved. For sure, it is really exciting time to be involved in the project. Yeah, so you know we're chatting with the time you know i'm chatting with the target uni and about these bloods and hopefully get some disease screening going soon and yeah it's it's you know we've got all these years this year these previous years worth of data so it's, it's fun that we've it's great that we finally got a permanent team in for this this bird and you know even though we had a drop off it looks like we're going to have a drop off in numbers this year the team didn't start until november december so we're going to hit the ground running sort of this year in this breeding season and we're confident we can sort of turn this around for the bird um soon well you know australia and new zealand both are hot spots globally for a lot of biodiversity loss um you've mentioned it it's, it's a lot to do with with human intervention a lot of pests well we regard them as pests and unfortunately some australian native animals here as pests as well but yeah. You know, it's a lot of introduction of species. You know, why do birds nest on the ground here in New Zealand? That's daft. Well, that's because we never had predators. So, you know, a lot of um, that intervention over the last hundred, if not two hundred years, it's a very short period of time, mm. and and we've we've lost a lot. So, it's really heartening to to um, see some of these wonderful projects. There's a lot of aspirations in New Zealand of creating a lot of pest-free zones. There are a lot of pest-free areas and we're seeing the impacts, the positive impacts of that. So, but it's a lot of work. Like you say, it's incredible, massive fences spanning 
hundreds of kilometers. You know, you, you've got to make sure that that it's sealed off completely. Harrison's been absolutely wonderful to catch up with you. Two years on, yeah. uh, you're doing amazing work. Oh, uh, who needs to publish a paper? You can still do amazing work without it. Yeah, Jen, uh, if you're listening. No, we wish you... <laughs> <laughs> and she probably will be uh, but look we know it'll get published it's it's not easy but the, I, I believe the more rewarding you know the challenges you've got to go through and and, and the outcomes of, the, of these these kind of papers are, are are massive so thank you for the amazing work that you do thank you for coming to new zealand and doing some of the amazing work uh we appreciate it um and we look forward to seeing where next yeah um you know <laughs> desert island Antarctica? Yeah. Who yeah, knows? I mean... Paid you in from Antarctica in a couple of years. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll do a live interview from you. Yeah. Uh, it was great to chat with you guys as well. No, it's been an absolute pleasure, Harrison. Thank you yeah. so much for, for coming back onto the show. Cheers. No worries. Good to be here, guys. Thank you for listening to the Lentil Intervention Podcast. If you found this interesting, make sure you subscribe and share it with your friends.